at the time, the writing program at Interlochen was run by three men in their 40s, all writers, all fly fishermen. Okay. And my mentor kind of jokingly said, I don't know, when you pick a college, maybe just go someplace beautiful. Go to Montana. That's what I do. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in this week. Before we get into today's episode, just a reminder to please get out there and complete our listener engagement survey. We've got a link posted to all of our social channels a new angle pod at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find a link to the survey on the landing page of our website, a new angle podcast.com. So please check it out. We're doing this so we can improve the listener experience. We can get information from all of you that we can use to make things better and to give you more of what you like and less of what you dislike. So uh, help us out, complete the survey. All right, today's guest, Melissa Stevenson, another just fantastic writer in the University of Montana orbit, a graduate uh, in English of our program here at the University of Montana. We talk a lot about her new book that came out in July, Driven, A White-Knuckled Ride Through Heartbreak and Beyond. It's Melissa's first book. It's a powerful memoir about her amazing life experiences to date, uh, the tragic loss of her brother. Uh, We have a pretty powerful conversation about the process she went through to write this book, how she felt like she was ready to capture the truths and the difficult things she's been through in her life. And I really appreciate not only the book, but Melissa's willingness to come on and share her stories, not only about uh, her life experiences that contributed to this book, but also the process she went through to uh, to write it, because it's an interesting process. And I really always enjoy talking to writers about how they approach their craft You'll probably see some parallels in this conversation, not only in terms of content, but also in terms of techniques uh, between Melissa and Cheryl Strayed, who we talked with a couple of weeks ago. It's been a super interesting experience for me to talk to all these amazing writers, and we have a lot of writers lined up over the next few months to talk with as well. So excited to bring you Melissa Stevenson right now. Okay, so we're here today with Melissa Stevenson. Melissa, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's pretty amazing. We must travel in similar circles here in the small town of Missoula. I mean, you're a runner. I'm a runner. You are a Eurovan owner. I'm a former Eurovan owner. I actually sold mine to John Wicks, friend of the podcast, and he's since, I think, passed it on to somebody else. Anyway, it's it's great to meet you and have you on the podcast. Nice meeting you, too. So you've just sort of put out, well, in the last six months, published Driven, Mm -hmm. your first book, a memoir. We'll talk all about it, but it seems like you're just sort of have wrapped up the tour. Is that right? Yeah, I just finished my last bit of travel. Let's see, I got back from the Texas Book Festival right before Halloween. So I'm finally home for good after, after um, yeah, several months of intermittent travel. What's that like? I mean, first books, it's your first experience with that book tour. I think it's really odd for someone who works in isolation. Yeah, exactly. To suddenly go out there and, and, you know, after years of making a thing, have a sense of um, having an audience and talking to readers. So I was intensely grateful for the experience. But at the same time, 
I, I'm definitely ready to be home and, and recharge after that very extroverted experience of going out and interacting with so many people. A little solitude with your keyboard might be in order yes. or, or without the keyboard. I, I don't know. <laughs> Both happening right now. Yeah. Nice. And probably have more regularity with your children at this point. Yeah, I definitely miss them. They w- they participated in some of the tour with me, which was its own wild experience and something I'm really grateful for as well. But there was an entire month, I think that's the longest I've been away from them in one solid stretch. Uh, the month of September I spent in Brooklyn and wow. I was yeah. away from them Oof, for the entire change. month. Yeah. And then it's the most time I've been away from them, say, over like a four or five month period of time. So, you know, it's nice to just be home and back to the routine of kind of rolling through our, our school week and work week and days and spending time together. Yeah. And so speaking of you know being home, and, and that's sort of something I wanted to explore with you. You know, the, the book is a memoir, so you sort of get to know a little a lot about your, your life through reading it the decision and the opportunity to go from a small town in, in Indiana to a boarding school like Interlochen. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that that choice and how that opportunity came came about? Yeah, I did not come from the, the, the type of family where people knew anything about boarding school yeah. or thought about boarding school. It was definitely something we hadn't experienced in part because of social and economic class. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking back now, I think as everyone ages, you might have this experience where you look back on yourself, um, your younger self, and realize that you just kind of had a certain innate quality that you didn't realize was different or didn't really know where it came from. And from the time from the time I was young and you could send away for information on schools, like in the back of Seventeen magazine, you know, you'd yep. I'd start I started sending away in fifth grade for information from military boarding schools or any kind of uh ticket out of the state of Indiana. And was that an explicit want at that point to to get out of your current situation? Yeah. And it wasn't because um, it wasn't really because I came from a a difficult family life of any sort there. I had young parents, a really, you know, fun family to grow up in um, and a lot of love. I just was born with this innate sense that I was supposed to live elsewhere and okay. and go out into the world and do other things. Mm-hmm. And so I was really searching for that from the time I was very young. And in eighth grade, at the end of middle school, I found out about Interlochen. And this was ideal because I was pretty active in the arts. And it was a fine arts boarding school in the middle of the woods in northern Michigan. And so I started to apply for that in secret. And my parents found out and took me up for an interview, kind of to humor me, sure. <laughs> um, or audition. And then um, I had the odd good luck that um, I got a, a hefty scholarship from Cummins Engine Plant. Okay. And their world headquarters just happened to be in my small hometown of Columbus, Indiana. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And looking back now, I realize, despite you know the quality of my audition. Interlochen probably really wanted to be able to use those scholarship funds, yeah, yeah. and I might have been and the it, first person to apply in years, so it worked out. Well, it worked out for both parties, I it guess. It did, right, yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So for, from Interlochen, during that time, you sort of, you know, it's a, there are a variety of creative arts going on in that, in that school, a lot of performance art, but during that time is when it emerged that you sort of wanted to pursue writing as, as, as a thing? Yeah, I originally went up for my audition to Interlochen, carrying my flute, 
and some some poems that I'd written and let's see my ballet shoes and I ended up auditioning for theater I think they were in need of theater majors Um, so my first two years I was a theater major and that was a struggle and I think those two years were about learning that while I love the literature and the characters being on stage uh, was maybe not my thing and rolling with that large group of of really bright shiny extrovert personalities exuberant big personalities yeah yeah I definitely um, got sidelined I I didn't know how to participate in that but then the the flip experience the opposite happened as soon as I walked in and changed my major to creative writing I just kind of knew I'd found my thing Mm -hmm. and you ended up here in Missoula at the University of Montana studying English so tell us how that happened the year that I was searching for colleges I happened to read three random books all made mention of this place called Missoula, Montana. I think okay. it was um, Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. The The narrator, I believe, is a, a school teacher from Missoula, Montana. Mm-hmm. And a Jim Harrison, I think it was in the Legends of the Fall collection somewhere in there. He makes reference to Missoula, Montana. And A River Runs Through It, sure, which yeah, around that time, Norman McLean. yeah, it was being made into a movie. And then at the time, the writing program at Interlochen was run by three men in their 40s, all writers, all fly fishermen. Okay. And my mentor kind of jokingly said, I don't know, when you pick a college, maybe just go someplace beautiful. Go to Montana. That's what I do. And I did select three or four different colleges to visit. Um, but I, I physically reacted to Missoula when I you know, stepped out of the airport and just looked up, and I'd never been further west than Chicago. I think a lot of people have this experience with Missoula. Yeah, yeah. But it, it resonates. Yeah, it, it made me, kind of made the top of my head tingle, which is what Emily Dickinson says a good poem should do to you. And I kind of knew I'd found the place. I hope they never build jetways here. Yeah. You know, when my I came out here, I was a graduate student at University of Washington in Seattle, and we came out for, for my recruiting visit, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting off the plane with no jetway, just walking onto the tarmac. And this yes. was in early September or something. Just breathtaking views. It's actually way better experience than it is driving into Missoula. Driving into Missoula is much less aesthetic. That's true. Yeah, I agree with that. So a student here at the University of Montana, what, what years were you here? Let's see. I kind of did the five-year plan where okay. I came out as a full-time student and then took a little bit of time to, to get residency and, sure. and attended part-time. Um, so I was here 93 through 98, but okay. I continued to live here until 2000. Yeah. Interesting time to be at the university, different time than now. Yes, for yeah. sure. And so during that time, you know, as a student and then as a graduate of the program, are, are, you know, what is your relationship to writing at this point? It was interesting coming um, out here as an undergraduate. In hindsight, it was an excellent decision for reasons I didn't fully understand okay. then. I was coming from coming from this program at Interlochen. What was unusual is that I'd already had two years of solid creative writing workshops, yeah. the same type of workshops that an undergraduate would have here. So I had this unusual background. On top of that, our visiting writers were people like Rick Bass and Pam Houston okay. and Galway yeah, Cannell. prominent and, folks. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd come from this really remarkable program. And most places as an undergrad, you know, you're looking up to the graduate students sure. having that kind of experience, and you don't really have access to that yourself. 
At the time, there was a new poetry professor here, Mark Levine, who now, I believe, teaches in the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And he was maybe 26 years old, a really, really young professor, and he was also my advisor. And as a freshman, with a lip ring and green streaks in my hair and my collection of poems, I kind of waltzed into his office and said, well, I'd like to actually be in your highest level workshop. Mm. And he kind of laughed and he had me go to um, some, you know, 200 level workshop, a 300 level workshop. And I kept coming back saying, no, I, those aren't the classes for me. I, w- I want to be in your 400 yeah. level workshop. And he finally let me in. And he told no one that I was a freshman. I'm sure they could have guessed I was painfully silent. And at the end of the uh, semester, he kind of filled everyone in on this experiment of having a freshman in his workshop. And I still see those writers, you know, they were graduate students, and it was really cool to be able to work with them and and look up to them. Um, but I was mainly writing poetry, and the reason this program was so excellent for me as an undergraduate is that at the time, you did have that overlap where once an undergraduate reached those 400-level workshops, they were crossing paths with some of the sure. graduate students. Yeah. So I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, and that kind of makes me think about... You know, something I've heard you speak about and write about in other instances is, is this concept of confidence. And you talked about your time at Interlock, and you didn't have the sort of confidence that motivated you to do the stage work or the performatory work. Yet to to write a book like Driven, to write a memoir as your first book, to ask this professor as a freshman to be in the, the advanced seminar that takes a certain type of confidence. So can you talk about yeah. how that, you know, you relate, you know, confidence within you and the different types mm-hmm. of, mani- in different ways it manifests? Yeah, I mean, what you're tapping into with that question is something that I'm actively thinking about right now. Okay. And actually, um, I'm writing about it now. And also having the book come out and having people that I grew up with read it and them giving me responses has has brought to the foreground for me this sort of innate confidence that I've always felt when it comes to knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always uh, felt that I don't knock on doors because I deserve for that door to be open for me. But if it's open for everyone to knock, I have as much right as anyone else. Why not me? Yeah. yeah why not me? Yeah. Or at least why not ask, right? And sure. then whatever decision is made is their business. Um, The flip side of that is that I take rejection pretty well, and I do get a lot of rejection. I think the year before the book came out, I was submitting poems and essays and and asking for fellowships, all kinds of things, and I aimed for 100 rejections that year. I think I came in at 117, but then the 20-some acceptances I had were really remarkable in some of the highest markets that I'd published in and, Uh and residencies and fellowships. Um, So I'm good at not taking that personally. But then the flip side is, you know, I have struggled. My memoir, Driven, took me, depending on how you look at it, anywhere from about three years to eight years to sure, write. Sure, And I think a lot of that was not having the confidence that um, I could be someone who could actually write an entire book. Well, and that, that actually kind of leads to my next line of thought. I mean... One look at the book is it's a book about your brother and your relationship with your brother brother and his tragic passing. And then the, the other side is it's a book about you mm-hmm. and your life. And so what what was your relationship with the notion of a memoir as you were in those three, four, eight-year process of writing it? 
definitely what got me um, to sit down and start writing was the notion that I was going to write about others. Um, not to expose them, but to kind of tell the story of my family. Yeah. So I first started writing the book in these tiny little snippets when my kids were very young and I, I didn't have much writing time and I was just trying to write the weird little stories that I grew up with about my family. Um, my family, they're all excellent storytellers mm-hmm. um, with a really dark but good sense of humor. So I started to write these tiny little stories and uh, after a few years, um, they were what I would call like little creative nonfiction flash pieces meant to stand alone. Yeah. My ex-husband, who's also a writer and was my husband at the time, you know, he kind of said, I don't know. It looks like maybe you might have a book there. And I thought, oh, no, that's, I, I wouldn't even know how to do that. The second level of, of committing to telling the story, what, what drove me further and to be able to try to tackle writing an entire book, I knew lingering over, under those stories of my family was the larger story of, of my brother's death. Yeah. And I really think that's a story that I could not, I had to write, I had to write that story before I could go on to really invest myself in other projects. And so once I strung together all those little pieces, I found the structuring device of writing about cars, which is what allowed me to write about the deeper story of my brother's death. And it really wasn't until the entire manuscript had been revised several times and my agent was getting ready to put it out on submission, which uh-huh. means selling it to publishers. Yeah, yeah. And she said, well... You know, you've done a, such a good job. She was saying something congratulatory. And she said, I, I hope you know, though, I hope you realize by now, you didn't just write a book about your brother. You wrote a book about yourself. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that um, for lots of complex reasons, um, I think one of them is in the literary community, there is a sense of, um, oh, if you're a female confessional poet or, oh, if you're a female memoirist, you're writing about yourself and isn't that possibly shameful? Interesting. Okay. And so I think with the the self-confidence, that was part of the baggage where if I were writing a novel and I I happened to be writing about rich teenagers in the Hamptons um, playing tennis, as Philip Roth writes about, I don't think I would have questioned the validity of that. Yeah, that's, I, I hadn't thought about that gender dynamic with, with memoirs. Yeah. You feel like that was an explicit thing you bumped up against? Was it, I think it's you something... You shouldn't do that as, as, as your first book as a, as, a, as a woman writer? I think it's something I internalized. Okay. And um, there are lots of reasons for that. Um, I don't know that, that people, as I was writing the memoir, well, I wrote it so much in isolation. I was done with my education by then. I'd earned my master's degree in fiction. Yeah. But coming out of a master's degree in fiction, you know, there were definitely a lot of loud male voices in that program, which I think is not uncommon, and um, having a background in poetry as well. And submitting poems as a a woman writing about motherhood, um, I was very aware that there are are schools of thought that very well-respected writers participate in, where writing confessionally or writing um, about yourself is at least framed in a way that is shameful. Huh. So part of the process there is to realize what I've internalized and kind of articulate it and go, oh, I, that's not serving me. And actually, I don't, I don't uh, agree to any of the assumptions of that premise. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because a, a theme of your book, and we talked a little bit before 
starting to record that you know we had Cheryl Strait here on campus a few months ago or a month or so ago and I got the chance to to do an interview with her and you know this broader conversation about grief and how we fail broadly mm-hmm. as a society to talk about it then we fail at the individual level we fail within families we're not good at grief no yet it seems that these types of books like driven like wild are getting closer to the truth of of how to effectively confront cope and deal with grief so this notion of oh you shouldn't write about that mm-hmm. that seems to be consistent with this general failure to deal with grief it's the same thing yeah. really um i think there's a line in the book where i kind of acknowledge that um i experienced two losses when my brother died um coming from a, a family of storytellers and my brother um giving us some of the the best stories uh, the oddest stories the most eccentric stories uh there was the loss of having an actual sibling in this world and then the secondary loss was oh now when i try to tell a story about him uh, it makes people feel weird, yeah, and they don't yeah. like it. Yeah. And so, socially, w- despite you know all the many complex reasons people had to react that way, I was being asked to sort of um, just cut that person out of my life completely. Mm. And so, you know, it is. Um, I did have to find a way to make space for this story, uh-huh. and doing that through literature, then people can have their own private experience with it. I so admire how Cheryl Strayed did that. And in fact, I was aware of her book. I also had done a long distance hike of the Appalachian Trail in 97, which is just a paragraph in the book. And because her book was so popular through the years I was writing Driven, I did not allow myself to read a word of Wild until Mm. I was maybe on my third or fourth draft and, and had an agent by then. And um, that probably makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I didn't want to be too influenced, and I'm glad because I I definitely um, was moved by Wild and the connection between the adventuring and the grief and the adventure as as a way to reckon with your grief. Yeah, you know, and along those lines, I mean, you you, you referenced it earlier. You using cars as a mechanism to kind of tell this story. At what point, I mean, when you're, when you're in the process of trying to put this project together, to go from these you know, little vignettes that you've written or tried to capture and then your ex-husband telling you this might be a book, and you know, does, does the realization that this, this through line of cars and the, the, the important role they played in your family, does that create the opportunity to then think of this as a book or does it later present itself as a way to connect all these disparate pieces that you've assembled? I was trying to find a way in to, um, you know, I had all these flash pieces and I had accepted, okay, at least open my mind to the idea that this could be a book. And the one story that is sorely missing is the main story of my brother's death. So I was looking for a a way in with no confidence that I could find it. And I'd say there's, there's three main things that happened for this book that happened very quickly. Uh, Most of it was just good old fashioned hard work and, and trudging along through sentences and paragraphs and revising. And, um, but three things were sort of aha moments um, that felt like great, great gifts when they, when they arrived. Um, I found the, the, cars as a shaping device actually when I had written all the the little shorts and um, one of them 
is in the book in an adapted form. And that short was about um, an early memory where my family buys its first new car off the lot. Okay. And yeah. that was in 1978, yep. Sky Blue Valari. Mm-hmm. And so I was just kind of trying to figure out, you know, kept trying to um, write my way into the story. And whenever I'd try to write directly about my brother's death, the words just fell flat. I mean, there was no life to them. I couldn't do it. And then I, staring at that little short, just revising it, I was like, oh, immediately started to scratch out a list of all the cars that we'd had yep. growing up and then realized, oh, then my brother died and I inherited his um, 79 Ford F-150 and right. his overweight and it blue break dealer. down right, right away. And it, the vehicle was clearly haunted. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and gave me lots of trouble. And then my own Volkswagen van, my first one, broke down. And I end up, you know, in Texas where the last three digits of my new zip code are 666. And uh. it's um, over 100 degrees every day. And somehow by then I owned um, two cars and none of them them ran. And that was, you know, what grief felt like. Yeah. So once I found that shaping device... I was able to tell the story and, you know, there's this idea that all stories are about something extremely specific or small and -hmm. something very enormous. And finding that specific focus helped me get to the larger, more enormous story lurking below. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is Cameron Lawrence, MIS professor in the College of Business, and you're listening to A New Angle. So you've called this a shaping device, and that, that's apt. Mm-hmm. The process you're describing, it's, it's hard for me to distinguish. It certainly it creates a setup for you to tell the story, right? Mm-hmm. But does it create a setup for you to cope with the grief and understand the awful things that you've gone through yourself? And how do those two things fit together in this and capturing that? What comes to mind is um, something I distilled in the past few months promoting the book, something that was lingering, um, but that I never was able to articulate very clearly. I would say in the family I grew up in, looking back, these huge issues were clearly lingering. We didn't talk about what I later found out was a family history of right, depression and right. suicide. We didn't talk about what was becoming increasingly clear um, addiction issues with my mother and my brother in the family. But we could talk about cars. Yeah. And often through talking about cars or music or any of the specific things we could chat about, some of the larger issues would find their way in naturally, just little hints of them. Okay. There's a scene where, um, in the book where I'm picking up my brother to go to my grandmother's funeral, our great-grandmother's funeral, and he is casually, as we're talking, burning a tattoo off of his leg by heating up the head of mm-hmm. a large nail. Right. right, And we're talking about my new car, a Saab. Um, and as we're kind of talking about this car and this bizarre scene is going on, eventually somehow I get my first verbal confirmation from him that he sees our mother is drinking far too much as well. Mm. And I forget how exactly it comes up, but just through us having this sort of inane everyday conversation, suddenly that big thing bubbles up and he's like, I'm worried about mom. And it's like, oh, okay, reality check. He sees it too. And I think writing about cars in the book worked very much the same way where when I wasn't 
trying to write about something as overwhelming and abstract as grief, uh-huh. then I could focus on the scene. And as a, you know, a writer trained in fiction, that's very comforting to me to be able to draw the reader into a scene. And through that scene, often without me even understanding the importance of it, by the time I'd get to the end of the scene, boom, something would bubble up that was about grief, about connection, about our family history, something far larger. And are you recognizing that as, as the words are coming out? Or does it take, I mean, what's, what's that process look like? Are you in the moment or are you reflective after when you read what you what you put down? I'd say on, I mean, this is happening to me still today. Yeah. What I've learned is to really trust that process and that when I sit down to write, I don't want to know exactly where it's going. Sure. But clearly there's something pulling me to the page that's intriguing to me. And so on a good writing day, um, when those things do start to bubble up, you know, I would look like an odd bird perched on the, the end of her chair, talking to her computer going, yes, <laughs> I see it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes it might be a scene that I have to revise several times before I um, pull out all those threads. And definitely when you take it to the larger scale of a book, there's so many scenes that were written where um, the ultimate threads didn't tie back. And so those scenes were cut and the uh-huh. ones that are that, that kind of... Um, all wove together are the ones that stayed. Yeah, it makes me think about um, some of the challenges of, I mean, I, I teach in a business school. We try to do a little bit of writing here. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. important for our students to be, for any student to be an effective verbal and written communicator. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, it's, it's hard for me in the context of my class to teach writing. And then the type of writing I do doesn't really, you know, qualify me as a, as a teacher for any kind of creative writing, but it makes me think about, I'm really intrigued by your process. Mm-hmm. And one thing that, that stood out to me when, when reading Driven was, it's a memoir, but it's, it's nonlinear. And you play around with time in a really fascinating way. And it made me think, what does that writing process actually look like? Do you write it linear, linearly and then sort of after the fact, move things around to make it worked? Or you know, how, does, how does that, how does time factor in, in in the construction of a memoir? Yes to all of what you okay. said. Yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was definitely a real messy, time-consuming process, finding the structure of this book. And, oh, I hope that um, I learned how to reduce that sort of experimental time with future books, but who knows? Uh, When I first read this, it actually had um, a braided timeline. Mm -hmm. And so um, the main events of the book start to happen as my then husband and I are moving away from Missoula in August of 2000. So I think the first chapter was an August of 2000 section. Then every other chapter would flash back to the past. And eventually, by the very end of the book, those two timelines met. The feedback I got is that while that was an artistic and and beautiful and sometimes moving way to structure it, it was very confusing. Mm. And I couldn't see it anymore because I'd been working on this book so long. Yeah. So then I separated all that out and I used, um, I tried to put it as much as possible, which is hard for me as a poet, into a linear story. I I guess I'm just wondering, like... I mean, I can do that with an academic paper, like move mm-hmm. one section from another, but we're still dealing with a small number of pages. When you're yeah. dealing with a, you know, 100, 150-word document, like yeah. how do you, you're intimately familiar with where things are and what they are and whatever, but like how do you even begin the process of moving 
things yeah. around like that. Um, sometimes it involved printing things up and um, actually cutting apart pieces of paper really? and taping them back together. Um, it definitely involved um, taking each section. It was a long time before I even found chapter names. Um, taking each section and giving it a title and putting it in its own Word document. Okay. And then kind of shuffling those around. And, you know, it was a mess. I often had three different files that were 90,000 words each that were three different versions wow. of a possible timeline. Um, I do love the way it ended up for certain reasons. It is linear enough that you can kind of follow the main timeline. Uh-huh. And yet there's these things that break up that linear quality. And there is a whole section um, in the third quarter that kind of steps back to the year before my brother's death. Um, But it all seems pretty intuitive, I would hope, without being completely linear. And I don't think our memory is really linear. Not at all. So I I like that uh, the book has some of that sort of um, zoom in, go into hyper-focus, and then zoom out and kind of collapse time. Yeah, I hadn't on. thought of it from that standpoint. I mean, it reads so fluidly. Like, I mean, that's kind of why I was so intrigued by this this notion of how you actually did it. And, and the fact that it maps on to the fact that our memories are nonlinear, yeah. you know, and the salience of different memories does not align with time and right. all those things. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it works super well, but it seems like it, it was really hard to do. And I'm sure it was. It took a lot of, um, it, it took a lot of trial and error, yeah. but then when things started to fall in place, um, I could see that happening because I knew the material so well. And then the second and third uh, things that happened that were just sort of aha moments are the more experimental parts of the book. Those are the sections in italics. And then first in the first half, that section all happens from my brother's point of view on August 6th, the day of his death. And that kind of breaks up the linear quality of, of a book that tries to cover all of childhood in like the first 80 pages. Yeah. yeah. And in the second half, it's this little section um, that I think is the bargaining we do with grief. And, and they're just little one or two sentence passages that I'll start with. Consider this. Yeah, the hypotheticals, the counterfactuals. and that's... The, Yeah, the idea is if, you know, a butterfly flapped its wings on the other side of the world, right. would my brother still be alive? But that's, I mean, that's a huge part of grief, right? Yeah. I mean, I always think about what could we have done or how could this have done differently if I had tied my left shoe instead of my right shoe first, you know, this yes. all would have changed. And yeah. I think that's we naturally go there. Yeah, and I was grateful to find um, a way that cut out all the fat and connective right, tissue right. to just drop those little bits in there without needing to get more people in and out of rooms or introduce more characters. Sure. Or, yeah, yeah, it's very effective. Good. Um, and I guess as you know, one thing I've thought about, um, you know. Through, through thinking about driven in your relationship with your brother and the, you know, the highs and lows of that. How do you, as, as a mom, as a single mom here in Missoula, your children are, what, 10 and 12, you said, 11 and 12? 9 and 12. 9 and 12. You know, how do you view your responsibility as a mom with your children to kind of observe patterns in their behavior, mm-hmm. how they interact with you, how they interact with each other, um, how you deal with grief within your family, Things like that. How has how's your writing and your reflection affected your role as a mother? I think it's made me more aware of um, our sort of inherited ghosts 
And by that, I mean uh, whether it's an actual sense of a, a lost person, like my brother and his story, and what that means in my life and, and what it means for my kids, uh, or if it's a inherited pattern or tradition hmm. or silence or omission. Um, for example, my kids ended up being the exact same age and gender spread as my brother and myself. Yeah, uh, I was three years younger than my brother. Their temperaments are very similar as well. Um, but even in noting that, that's not something I tell them, and that's not something I try to cast onto them or, or pigeonhole them with. Okay. I will say, um, you know, my parents were very young, and I don't think they were aware of or uh, chose not to address some of my brother's, you know, pretty benign mistreatment of me. But he definitely antagonized me. So something that I've been a little reactive about, I think in a positive way, is um, setting a r- real clear boundaries about how my kids treat each other and how we treat each other within the family. Okay. And as a result, not that it's all my doing, maybe they would be doing it anyway, but um, they seem to really have each other's backs. And maybe that's coming from a single parent family as well. We all have. Sure, you have to. Yeah, that feeling of kind of having each other's backs and... Um, not pushing it too far and being able to um, be attentive to each other's feelings. Another whole area um, or, or subject that I, I've had to begin to deal with as the book comes out and, you know, as my kids are young and I'm writing the book even, is how to handle with my own children um, a family history yeah. of mental illness, addiction, and suicide. Right. And, uh, you know, I thought I was doing pretty well with that, and then I realized as the book's coming out, oh, man, they don't actually know how their uncle died yet. Mm. And so I was able to talk about um, their grandmother's uh, – I've had to talk about their grandmother. Uh, my mother, she's still alive, but she's an alcoholic, and when we visit, they see that or they see me take phone calls. They they, they know there are hospitalizations. And that seemed pretty safe to them. They, they've they always known, you know, Grammy is sick, and now they know that that is alcoholism. It doesn't seem to affect their um, their attachment to her. It's kind of what they've always known. They've heard that about my brother as well. Definitely with my older son, we've had conversations of, okay, so eventually when you um, experiment with substance, you know, here's the family history and here are the things to watch out for. Sure. But I, I really worried about how that word suicide would settle with them and knowing that they were going to go on book tour with me into some of these events. Yeah. Um, we had to have that talk last summer as the book was coming out. And my son was mainly concerned that I was telling him something that he thought was hard for me. And mm-hmm. uh, my daughter was kind of like, okay, well, can we go inside and to, into the bookstore and buy a book now? You know, it's a little <laughs> over her head. Yeah, yeah. And so that's something that you kind of drop it in there, you circle back and take questions, and I think that will be an ongoing thing um, that we talk about throughout their their youth and adulthood. Yeah, it seems like some things with children, you know, we, we lost my wife's father, I think my daughter was less than two years old mm-hmm. at the time, and a few things like that, you know, we just were super concrete with her. There's certain things, you know, telling your, you know, talking to kids about sex or talking to kids about drugs or talking to kids about death. It's like you can be very concrete or that's a way through. 
Um, it's tended to work for us okay. But with something like mental illness, it's mm-hmm. really hard to explain. I mean, if somebody's sick and they die, or if somebody's sick and they aren't going to get better, that, that's somewhat easy to explain. Yeah. But with something like mental illness, I haven't really figured out the words. So not only is it it's sort of awkward and it has the societal kind of taboos about talking about it, it's also actually difficult to find the right language, I think. I think so, too. And that's probably the one we've talked about the least because, you know, my mom and my brother, they don't don't have slash didn't have any concrete diagnoses that I know of. Yeah. And yet it was really clear that they were self-medicating for mood disorders. I think one way it trickles into my parenting, though, um, you know, I definitely realize as a writer, even though I, I seem to have escaped um, – the mental illness issue as a as a creative person, I probably have more feelings than than some people, or they um, are closer to the surface and pretty accessible. Sure. With the kind of writing I do, which is pretty raw and pretty vulnerable, I have to be able to sit down and and access those feelings on a daily basis. Um, but I think back to my mother, maybe not having um, the tools that you know a, a late gift that she's given me is to go find the tools that. Um, maybe I wished she would have had. And I know she would go silent for days and we'd tiptoe around it in the family and um, kind of all whisper finally, what do you think we did? Did you do it? Did you make her mad? And then we'd wait to listen on the phone because we knew she'd tell someone on the phone um, Mm -hmm. what the thing was that had happened. Um, I have heard that that kind of silence in a household often makes kids, they'll turn it into a... um, uh, what did I do? Yeah, sort of narrative. Blame. And so I've tried to be really clear, especially through the early days. I became a single parent when my kids were two and five, and I had just moved back to Missoula. Uh-huh. I didn't really know anyone. And when I would catch myself, you know, making dinner and, and kind of like slamming a door or something, I'd try to stop and take a deep breath and look at them and say, you know, even if it was something as simple as, I'm sorry, isn't, I'm kind of having a tantrum right now. And that has nothing to do with you. Yep. I'm just frustrated. That has nothing to do with you. Thank you for being patient. Mm-hmm. Just being able to name it. world is so small at that point. I mean, all it is yeah. is you and them in that room. They don't see work. They don't see no. you know, other drivers on the road or yeah. you know, all those other little big or little triggers that are out there. They just see that their safest person who's there to take care of them is having a really hard time and they're kind of helpless to do anything about it. And that's evolved as my son gets older. I realize he's um, both of them. They pick up on more, and whether I've gotten a call that my mom's had a medical episode, this is one example, and uh, for a day or so, I was really upset, and he just kept checking on me, and finally, I was like, oh, I thought to tell him the truth. Your Grammy's really sick, and I worried that he'd be scared, yeah. and I said, your Grammy's really sick, but she's been sick like this before, and you know, there's nothing we can do about it. It just made me a little sad. I could just see the relief. Sure. And he's yeah. like, oh, gives me a hug. He feels like he can help me. He feels like he can do something. And mm-hmm. there's not this scary silence. Um, so that's one way that, um, you know, ultimately, I think memoir should be an act of self-discovery and self-awareness. And if you can reveal that to your reader, hopefully you're going to show them your healing. And only once you have some of your own healing, can you hope to heal others? And what I'm getting at is that's how it that's how doing the work of memoir trickles into my daily life to hopefully make our household healthier. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good thing that it does. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of a healthy, happy household, what's, um, what's cooking? What's next for Melissa Stevenson? Oh, 
I I have two books that I'm working two. on right now. Three, if you count the collection of poems that That's I wrote. That's counted for three. Yeah, yeah I, I wrote a collection of poems um, as I was writing Driven, and we should just give poets all of our money and support because, man, is it hard to get a collection of poems out in the world because people don't buy much poetry, so there's not you have to win contests and things. So that's something that for the past year you know, has been a, a finalist and semi-finalist different places, and I'll keep trying to get that book out in the world. And then I have a rough draft of a slim, dark, funky novel that okay. it's been great to get back to fiction. And then I got sidetracked during my month of September in um, the Brooklyn, New York City area where I was on a writing residency. I started to write what I thought was a short essay about that experience and the experience of having a first book come out. About the experience in New York. Yeah. And the first book. Okay. Yeah. And um, that is kind of growing into something that's far beyond an essay. Um and uh, might be a book of its own. So it's been really fun to play with things and then kind of look around and again, oh, you know, I hear that voice, the sort of gift from my ex-husband years ago. Oh, well, maybe that's a book too. Yeah, well, it sounds like there's maybe three of those books. Yeah, a few of them. So to happen. Yeah. Well, that's awesome news. Uh, Melissa, it's been fantastic to visit with you, to hear more of your story. I mean, I've on this streak in this podcast of being able to speak with some amazing creative writers, uh, creative people like yourself. And um, I will admit, reading your book, reading Cheryl's book, I read this book by Vanessa Grigoriadis about uh, sexual assault on college campuses, mm-hmm. the, some challenging topics yes. to read about, but so important and uh, has expanded my mind. And I thank you for that work and I hope you keep doing it. Thank you, and and also thank you for being a brave reader. You know, it, it takes uh, the writers to write these these intense stories, but then it takes brave readers to come and and be willing to hold all that and hear that and process it. And well, so thank you. I'm doing my best. We'll try to keep at it. Wonderful. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you. Okay, coming up next week, we shift gears and sit down with John McCutcheon, molecular biologist here at the University of Montana. This guy is doing world-class work. He's one of a small handful of of people in his field that are really advancing science on the forefront of knowledge. Um, You know, I can't even hope to summarize the work John does. It's so over my head, but uh, it was fun to kind of pick his brain and try to distill the amazing work he does into something that was at least digestible to me and hopefully will be uh, fun and digestible for you too. So stay tuned for next week. Remember that a new angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you've been listening long enough to know that these guys are big and that they sell pretty much everything electrical you would ever need. But you might not know that they hire a ton of University of Montana students. If you want to learn more about careers at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Comzar, Elizabeth Willie, interns, Aspen Runkle, Mason Dow, and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO for the tunes, and finally props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time. <laughs>